Sweet. All right. Hey, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, let me just say welcome. Welcome to The Exchange. My name is Josiah. If this is your first time, so glad you're here, and hopefully I can meet you after. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're, this is like our sixth, I think, week now, seventh week in the Gospel of Mark. So if you would, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you a Bible so you can follow along with us. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. Take it, write your name in it, bring it back next week. Uh, but Mark chapter 2. I'm proud of you guys for being here uh, on Daylight Savings Time. We lost an hour, and look at you guys. You are here. Uh, I don't know if it's just me. I'm a little tired. Um, kind of hits us, but I love that we have more light. I love that we have more light. So this is kind of my favorite part of Daylight Savings Time. Um, listen, we are in Mark chapter 2, and we're really just trying to slow down as we go through this gospel, kind of take the year to look at the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, again, if, if you are new, just want to kind of give you a, a recap of what's going on. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's believed that this was the first Gospel actually written. So around 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that Mark penned this. Now, Peter calls Mark his son in the faith. And it's believed by Eusebius and other church fathers, they say Mark's Gospel is actually kind of Peter's Gospel. It's Peter telling Mark the story of Jesus. And so as we read the Gospel of Mark, you kind of see Peter's fingerprint, I think, throughout in different ways. So it's the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is also called John Mark, John being uh, his, his Roman name, Mark being his Hebrew name. So this is kind of the Gospel as a whole. This is known as the ADD Gospel. Uh, Mark likes to jump around really quickly. He, he says 41 different times immediately, immediately, and he goes to a new story. And so I love this gospel because if you're like me and your mind kind of is all over the place, this is a good gospel for you. He just jumps from one story to the next. And, and you'll notice that Mark is just trying to show you this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. Here's how the people responded to him, but what do you say? So it's Mark just kind of presenting to us the biblical Jesus and what do you say? So that's kind of how we're looking at this book. That's kind of how we're approaching it. And if you're with us last week, last week, last week we looked at the paralytic man coming to Jesus to be healed. Now, if you remember, we studied this, but there's, Jesus was in a house. The house was packed, just filled with people. There was no room even at the entrance. There's no room at the door. So this paralytic man is being brought to Jesus by four friends. They can't get inside, so they go, let's go on the roof. That's a good idea. So they climb on the roof. They tear a hole open in the roof, and they lower down this paralyzed man. And Jesus looks at him, and the first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone immediately in the house would have been confused for two reasons. One, that's not why he came. He wanted to be healed, obviously. Like, uh, Jesus, you do know he wants to be healed, right? Like, he, he's like, yes. But Jesus, we see, he saw that the guy's want was to be healed, but Jesus wanted to meet his greatest need. And, and we looked at how we have a lot of wants. We come to Jesus with a lot of wants, but Jesus ultimately wants to meet our greatest need, which is the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus met his greatest need, and then he met his want, and then he healed him. And if you guys remember, the Pharisees were kind of snickering. It says they said within themselves, you know, no one can forgive sins but God. Who does this guy think he is? And I love because Jesus is like, I heard that. Like they thought to themselves. And Jesus is like, hey, I hear what you're thinking. You want to know who can forgive sins? The one who hears your thoughts. That's who can forgive sins, right? Like Jesus is like, let me tell you who can forgive sins. And here's what Jesus is doing. Every idea that the, the Pharisees or Jews in their day thought about the Messiah, the way the Messiah would come, the way he should come, Jesus kind of began to change all of that. Jesus didn't come in the way they thought. He's touching lepers. He's forgiving sins. They're thinking, is the Messiah supposed to do this? It's almost like it's more and more scandalous what Jesus is doing. And even today, the story that we have in front of us, I love. Because it's another story that just kind of shocked everyone. It frustrates everyone. 
And really, the, the text we'll be looking at today, and, and the topic today, is Jesus simply, Jesus, the friend of sinners. And let me just say this. Here's my hope. My hope is that this text, Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, just becomes so ingrained into our DNA. That the way Jesus responded to these group of people, to the specific sinner and his friends, that this would be our heart as we approach people today. That I don't want to just be a, a gathering of, of just believers that are all about us and focus on us and never looking outward. Jesus is just looking outward. He's, he's loving people who are probably in the most darkest, deepest places far away from God. And he's eating a meal with them. And how I hope, and church, please listen, how I hope we become a church that invites sinners over, that sinners invite us over to. And I hope this becomes just a part of who we are. That we don't just read about Jesus hanging out with sinners and loving on sinners, the ones that had a terrible reputation, and we go, that's good for Jesus. I hope that today this can become a part of our DNA. Amen? It's been said that the difference between Christianity and every other world religion can be summarized in one word, and that is grace. That we have such a unique thing that we, did never, we never pursued God first, God pursued us first. That religion is man's attempt to reach God, but Christianity is God's attempt to reach man. And so the thing that separates us from everyone is God saying, I'm going to you. I don't care who you are, what you've done, how far away you've strayed from me, I'm going to you. And we see Jesus go out of his way to welcome a sinner into his family, and then we see this sinner invite other sinners to Jesus. And I love this story. So let's just read it. It's Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. We'll read it, then we'll pray and look at it more in depth. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. So remember, Jesus just healed this paralytic man. And in verse 13, it says, Then he went out again by the sea, the Sea of Galilee, remember? And all the multitude came to Jesus, and he taught them. And he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed Jesus. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Is anyone else thankful for that truth? That Jesus did not come for the righteous, but sinners? I'm so thankful for this. Let's just pray over this, give this time to him, and I hope just God just speaks to our hearts and just ingrains this into, into who we are today. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you did not come for the righteous. You came for me. You came for us. You came for sinners. And Lord, I, I just ask that all of us would be aware of that. God, I ask that our heart towards you, our heart, our heart towards others, would just be completely changed. That Jesus, we'd no longer be frustrated by people who are different than us, by people who are maybe more sinful than us in our eyes. God, give us a great love. God, I ask for this, this community here, that there'd be great love for each other. That God, we'd embrace and welcome different types and personalities and all of that, Lord. That we would just, just see that at the foot of the cross, we are all sinners saved by grace. Thank you for that, Jesus. In your wonderful name, amen. You know, we've all, we've all been there. You're at a party or a social gathering and, and you're having a good time. You know, you're enjoying yourself. And suddenly, walks in a party pooper. And they just suck the life out of the air right? We know these like life suckers, right? We've all been around party poopers. We all know what it's like. Everyone's laughing and having a good time, and then here, here comes Debbie Downer. 
Like all of a sudden you're like, why did, why, what happened? You're like, oh, so-and-so walked in, right? You know, maybe, maybe it's possible that we have some party poopers in this room. It's very possible. Maybe there's a party pooper next to you. Maybe it's you, right? But we've all been there. Um, it's, it is funny when you're with a group of people and you're like, let's get sushi. And someone's like, oh, I hate sushi. You're like, Ugh. let's get ice cream. I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> this is a great day. You're like, it's all right. You're like, ah, it's, like, it's just awful. I was asking my wife, I'm like, hey, do we have any good like party pooper stories and without using names? She's like, yeah, you can just talk about yourself. I'm like, ugh. I'm like, all right. <laughs> you party pooped on my party pooping story, okay? Um, now I won't forget my brother. Yeah, uh, he was voted, um, <laughs> it's great, he was voted class clown his senior year, all right, it's a big surprise, and um, so he was voted class clown, and it's a senior graduation, everyone's walking, everyone's sitting, I think it's the principal or the superintendent was talking, and my brother sneaked in like a bunch of just beach, blow, uh, beach balls, so he had like a, like a stack of like those little flattened beach balls in, in his gown, and busted them out and blew up like 10 beach balls, like he just sat there, blew them all up, and then like right in the middle of the principal's speech, he just started throwing them in the air, and like everyone's like, yay, and everyone's like laughing and getting into it, and I remember just sitting there watching, I'm like, oh, my brother's so cool, like I like loved it. And then my, there's this woman there who's also in high school, not really one, but she was just tall, 6'3". My brother's like arch enemy. She sees the beach ball, stands up one by one, grabs all of them, and pops them with her giant nails. It's like they're, they're flying there, and she stood up, grabbed one, and poof! You're like, what? Then like another one, she like reached over someone, grabbed, poof! And you're like, oh my gosh! And all of a sudden, all ten all the balls were just popped. My brother's like, what the heck? That took him like an hour to blow up! Like he was so mad. I just remember, like, in his mind, that was his perfect example of a party pooper. And we've, we've all experienced that to some extent, right? Like, I want you to imagine this. Um, imagine for a second that all of your family's friends, or all of your family and your, your friends, all of their stuff was repossessed. All of it was taken away. And then later that day, you invite the repo man over for dinner, right? Like, that's going to be a killjoy. Like, imagine, like, this is what's happening here. I want, I want you to see what's happening. Jesus just invited Levi, a tax collector, to be a part of his family and to be part of the disciples. And I want you to understand that would be such a killjoy because Levi and fishermen, this tax collector and Jews, they would actually tax them in a way to take and steal and go over the top and he would tax specifically fishermen in Capernaum. And this would have been a giant killjoy for the disciples. This would have rained on their parade. This would have changed everything. Like Jesus, if there's anyone you want to invite, please don't invite a tax collector. Like don't invite him to the party. They abuse us and take advantage of us, and this is exactly who Jesus invites in. And I love this, because at this point in time, Jesus is highly popular and yet also extremely controversial. And if you've grown up in the church, I think we can take this for granted, but Jesus did so many things that were contrary to what people thought, contrary to Jewish traditions, contrary to just what Jews expected of him, what Pharisees expected of him, what just a common person expected of Jesus. Jesus did so many things contrary to that. I actually can't wait for next week's message on, on fasting and different things, because Jesus just kind of changes the perspective on all of it. And so what I want to look at is this story of Jesus inviting Levi, this tax collector, into his family. And how this would have radically shaken up the disciples, their community, how they did community in their life. So let's read in verse 13. It's Mark chapter 2, verse 13 again. It says, Then he, Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. If you would circle the word taught, this is the fifth time Mark says Jesus taught them. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Mark doesn't really tell us what he taught them. It just says that he taught them. And there's usually a story. And here's what I want you to see. Mark emphasizes more the works of Jesus than the teachings of Jesus. And we'll see the teachings of Jesus throughout Mark in different ways, parables, the Sermon on the Mount, different gospels. There are the teachings of Jesus, but here's what I want you to see. Mark isn't trying to say that, Mark is showing us that Jesus taught the gospel, but Mark is showing us that Jesus is the gospel. And something I think what we can miss so often is we forget the gospel is not just a message of words. The good news is Jesus himself. 
Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. The story of God entering history, the story of God taking the place of us, taking our sin, our filth, our shame, taking the very wrath of God that was supposed to be on us was given to Jesus. Mark is trying to show you and I, I'm not going to emphasize what he taught, I'm going to emphasize him. And I think there's something really important about that. Because sometimes we can get stuck maybe on a certain teaching when you forget that Jesus himself is the good news. Does Jesus tell us the good news? Of course he does. Are the teachings important of Jesus extremely important? Yes. But Jesus himself is the good news. And Mark is saying this over and over again. He taught them, but he talks more about Jesus. And I want you to notice that it says he's by the sea. Now we've talked about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is really a lake. You can go to Israel still and be on this little lake. It's like 13 by 7 miles. Uh, Jesus spent two of his three years ministering near or around the Sea of Galilee. This is an important area. Think about three, his three years on earth ministering to people. He spent it in this area. This is an important area. A lot, of ha- a lot happened there. And in verse 13, when it says the multitudes came to him, I, I do have to point this out, that there were constantly crowds who came to Jesus. And, and that is a wonderful thing. But Jesus, his goal was not just to draw crowds, it was to make disciples. And I, and I want us to see there really is a difference between a crowd and making a disciple. And you got to know that our heart here is not just to draw crowds, but to make disciples. You see, Jesus drew crowds, but a lot of times the crowds left angry or upset or confused. And through that, Jesus would find who his true disciples were. There'd be teachings that would frustrate Jesus, that would frustrate the people. There'd be teachings from Jesus that say, I don't, I don't get that. I don't understand that. And Jesus, through that, was actually finding out who a true disciple was. And I, and I do want you and I to see that this, the crowds will come in times of popularity. But when there's not popularity, they usually leave. And that's when the disciples stay. You see, for the crowd, the crowd they come to receive, the disciples come to give. The crowds showed compassion for a moment of time, but the disciples were committed for a lifetime. And there really is a difference between the crowds and the disciples. And, and here's the point in some ways. In some ways, you can look on and say, here's a crowd. Here is a crowd. And our goal is to make disciples, followers of Jesus, students of Jesus, learners of Jesus. At the end of the day, the church is really, first and foremost, a discipleship factory to produce, to produce followers of Jesus. And I, and I have to point this out because I, I think this is so important. Can I just, there's something on my heart or something I've been thinking about is notice that Jesus made disciples in groups. Jesus never really, and, and don't get lost in this point, and don't just hear this out, Jesus didn't really spend a lot of one-on-one time with anyone. If he did, it was with Nicodemus or the lady at the well, is ultimately for their salvation. But if you think about it, Jesus did discipleship in groups of three or 12 or sent them out in pairs of two. My point is this, discipleship will happen in groups. I think it happens in groups because I think there's different people, different backgrounds, people that rub you the wrong way. They're different than me. They're older than me. They're younger than me. They have a different uh, focus than I do. They have this passion. I don't have that passion. And I think that's how Jesus grows people. I think Jesus uses people different than us. I think if you're in community with people that are just like you, talk like you, look like you, sound like you, you're probably missing out on, on true further discipleship. And I, and I think that sometimes people ask, well, who, who, are, who are you maybe discipling one-on-one? Or who's this? And I say, Jesus really didn't do a lot of one-on-one discipleship. He did it in groups. Now, I'm not against one-on-one discipleship. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not against mentorship by any means. But I'm saying that Jesus, Jesus did discipleship in groups. And I think there's something really important about that. That you and I can grow when there's two or three other people speaking in. I, did, I heard this guy say it, but I receive it from them. Sometimes I think we got to maybe shift our mindset a little bit when it comes to discipleship and realize Jesus sent them out in twos and threes and twelves. He did it together in groups. And listen, here's my hope. My hope is that we have groups. I think we have six groups now throughout the week, and we're going to add two more next week, and we'll share more about that. But our hope is that we are a family of disciples on mission with Jesus. 
that we're a group of people that are blending together. We're different, but we're blending together, and we're living on mission with Jesus together. And this is what Jesus did, and this is how he did it. And this is so beautiful to me. I, I love this because this is messy. Because Jesus invites Levi to be a disciple, but he also had a zealot. He had a zealot. He had someone who hated Rome and hated those who worked for Rome and actually tried to kill certain Romans or people who worked for Rome in his discipleship group as well. So imagine having someone who wanted to murder Rome and the government, and then you invited the government in, right? And Jesus does this, and I think it just, it just helps, and it builds, and it creates, and I love that discipleship happens in groups. And here's some three things I simply want to point out from our, t- from our text and from our time that I just see big thoughts in this text. And if you would write these down, we'll look at them more in depth. First and foremost, here's what I see. I see Levi embrace Jesus. He followed him. Embrace the Savior, number one. Number two, embrace the sinner. And number three, embrace the sickness. And and please notice this. Embrace the Savior, embrace the sinner, and embrace the sickness. So let's look at the first thought. Embrace the Savior. Embrace the Savior. Look at verse 14 again. Verse 14. It says, As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed Jesus. Embrace the Savior. I love this. Jesus sees Levi, walks up to him, and said simply these words, follow me. And he gets up and leaves all and follows him. That's all it took. And I, don't, I want to try this. I don't know if any of us have that kind of skill, like walk up to someone and like, hey, follow me. Perfect. He did. Like, I, don't know, I don't know if we could do that. This is, this is really cool. Jesus goes, hey, follow me, and he follows him. He embraced the Savior. And I do want you to see something. Obviously, he left the tax office. He left in the middle of his, in the middle of his job. He gets up and leaves. We also see that Jesus do this in Matthew or Mark chapter one, where he called Peter, James, and or Peter, James, John, and Andrew to him, and they left their their nets or they left their boats. But here, can I just point this out? They could always go back to fishing. Matthew or Levi could never go back to being a tax office officer again. He could never go back to this again. I want you to see that there is a cost to following Jesus, and I think we'd all agree that. But there's all there's there's two sides to being a disciple of Jesus, and I think this is so important because I don't want to confuse anyone. Listen. When it comes to following Jesus, listen, salvation is completely free, but discipleship will cost you everything. Salvation is completely free. Thank God salvation is free. That the salvation belongs to the Lord. That Jesus paid my price. Salvation is completely free, but don't miss this part. Discipleship will cost you and I everything. Matthew left everything. But let's be honest, did he really lose everything or leave everything? He left what his world was. He left his job, but he, by so doing, he gained Jesus. So did he really lose anything? Like, we see that Levi gained everything. And, and I, I want to point this out. There's a, I shared this guy with you before. Um, there was a pastor during World War II named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and maybe you've heard of him. He's gotten, kind of gotten more and more popular throughout the years. And, and he's a pastor who was against, you know, Nazi Germany. He's a Lutheran pastor in Germany before the rise of, of Hitler and his army. He was during that time, and he started seeing Jews go to concentration camps, and he, he spoke up against it. He, he fought against it. He was considered a spy. He was actually hung. He was killed a month before the war ended. Literally one month before the war ended, he was hung and killed. And this guy wrote a book that kind of became known called The Cost of Discipleship. And he talks about cheap grace versus costly grace. And I just want to read these two contrasts, cheap grace versus costly grace. Here's what he said. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without repenta- requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He goes, this is cheap grace. 
Because think about this. Salvation's free, but discipleship does cost you and I everything. That there's a cost to this. And then he talks about this costly grace, and I love this. We'll throw the next couple quotes up uh, about costly grace for you. He says, such grace, listen, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. He went on to say, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Let me say this. The call of Jesus was simply follow me. Can I tell you, the call of Jesus is not believe in God and try to be good. The call is not, hey, go to church a lot. The call is following Jesus. The, the word disciple, we've said this before, the word disciple simply means a learner. A learner. It's a learner of Jesus. And, and it, again, salvation is free, but discipleship, following Jesus will cost you everything, but by giving up everything, you gain everything. You gain everything through Christ and what he has to offer. And, and I want to explain this situation because you've got to understand the context here. I want you to think about Jesus is preaching to the crowds and he sees one person. He goes, hey, you, you, you one person, you follow me. He left the crowds, passes by Levi and says, I want you to follow me. Now understand, Levi was working for Rome. Now Rome was the oppressor. Rome oppressed the, the Jews. They oppressed that Jewish area. Uh, the, the Jews did not like Rome. Jews did not want Rome there. Understand they wanted nothing to do with Rome. In fact, you can actually, I'll, sh I'll show this, but during this time, you guys remember Herod the Great, just so you kind of get some history and context. Herod the Great was the guy who, when Jesus was being born, uh, he actually tried to kill all the males under two years old in Bethlehem. We'll put up the slide of Herod the Great and his kids and whatever. Uh, Herod the Great, he's called Herod the Great because he's the one who built the temple or helped rebuild the second temple. So he, he and, and he's called this title, but he's not really great, right? He murdered hundreds, if not thousands of babies for under two. Herod the Great died around 4 or 5 BC. He had a few kids. His kingdom was divided up. And here's where it went. It went to his, one of his sons, Archelaus. I don't know how to say it. He, went, he had Judea. Antipas had Galilee. Philip had the Golden Heights. Now here's why I point this out to you. Um, Antipas, Herod Antipas, was now the reigning king in that area. This is who Matthew worked for. Matthew worked for Herod Antipas. Now, when Herod the Great died, there was a new tax to travel from the Golden Heights with Philip into Galilee, there would be a tax office that would tax people who came and passed in that region. That's where Matthew worked. Matthew was taxing fishermen and people entering into that area. And, and I'm bringing this up because there's a time where people could remember, I wasn't taxed for this. I wasn't taxed for this at any point. Understand that, again, to bring it, make it really clear, uh, tax collectors were the most despised and hated people during this time, especially Levi. Levi was a Jew. Levi was a Jew who went to go work for the oppressor to oppress his own people. Again, tax collectors were viewed as they're traitors, they're liars, they're thieves. Back in this time, the way you would get this tax office, like Levi did, you would say, hey, Roman government, I promise you, I can get you this much money in taxes. And the highest bidder would win it. So basically, they would take off the top. They would, say, they would tax people more than they need to be taxed, and they'd also pocket that. So they were normally extremely wealthy, and this is a Jew oppressing his own people working for Rome. 
And like the only way I can think of it is like imagine a Jew goes to work for Nazi Germany to oppress Jews. I mean, his guy was hated. You got to understand, and this, and again, he's in Galilee of all places. I mean, Peter, James, John, and Andrew who are fishermen, and many more were fishermen, would know of Levi. Like, oh, this is the office that taxes us. We catch some fish, and he taxes us on this fish. This was a very hated man, and Jesus called him into discipleship. And I want you to see that Jesus simply said, follow me. And he gets up and leaves all and follows him. And I, I have to, like, I love this. Uh, Levi didn't do anything. He didn't ask for it. He didn't do anything for it. Jesus says, you follow me. Listen, if Jesus wants you, he's going to get you. That's all I know. If Jesus says, hey, you're mine, you're his. That's all I know. Jesus says, you're mine, follow me. And it reminds me that it doesn't, it doesn't matter what state of, of life you're currently in. If you're in addiction, if you're in sin, if you're abusing people, neglecting people, it doesn't matter what state you're in. If Jesus says, follow me, you're going to follow him because salvation is by the Lord, for the Lord, through the Lord. And I love this, that we don't see, and here's what's scandalous, we don't see Matthew crying out to Jesus. We don't see Levi crying out. We see him simply just receive this. And I love that the, the love of God outweighs my faith in him. And I really hope that you do see this, that God just, again, what, what leads us to repentance? It was the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It was Jesus saying, you follow me, and, and, and what does he do? He leaves all and follows him. And if I could just point out one thing, listen, religion will always demand change, but grace produces change. And, and here's what happens in, within Levi's life. And please don't miss this. Religion says to you and I, you need to change to be right with God. And yet with Christianity and with, with this idea of grace, God says, I love you. And therefore our life just changes. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. I don't repent and then get the goodness of God. And I, I want you to see again that religion will always demand change, but grace produces change. He didn't do anything. Jesus' love just so outweighed his faith in him. And, and I think this is something that we don't always grasp or understand or let, let us enjoy and sink into our hearts a little bit. Because I think so often that I try to do things to be right with God, or maybe you try to do things to be right with God. You know, it, I just love this story, and I love this passage, because I see Jesus looking on for people who he can just say, you follow me, you come with me. And how I'm so thankful Jesus called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, this is not just a story we read that happened 2,000 years ago, but Jesus still does this. That Jesus still says, hey, you follow me. I don't care if you're abusing, neglecting, hurting, taking advantage of other people like Levi, you follow me. And through that, guess what? Through that, he invites all of his friends over. Through that, his life completely changes. The goodness of God led to change in generosity. And I will tell you, if you've ever experienced the grace of Jesus, it will lead to generosity. If you've ever experienced Jesus' goodness, you go, how can I invite other people into this? How can other people be a part of this? Other people need to see this. It's like Zacchaeus, same kind of position. Zacchaeus was a tax officer. He taxed people. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, get down from the tree. I'm coming over for dinner. And he goes to dinner, and, and Jesus and Zacchaeus are talking, and Zacchaeus goes, I want to be right with you. I'm going to make sure everyone gets their money back, and I'm going to give God, I'm going to give the temple 50% of what I have, half of what I have. He experienced the goodness and grace of God. And he's like, how can I not be generous? And I think once you've really tasted and seen the Lord is good, you kind of go, how can I not be generous? How can it always be, how can it not, it can't be about me anymore. It once was about me, now it's not about me. All I know is that Levi is like, I need to invite other people into this. And can, again, I said Matthew, and I'm probably confusing some of you. Levi is also Matthew. <laughs> Levi became Matthew. Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew. I mean, this guy goes from a traitor, deceiver, manipulative man, to being an author of one of the gospels, to being someone who penned the very word of God. And that's what grace does. It, it just completely flips and changes everything about our life. I love that he goes from being an enemy, in a sense, to, these, to, to, to the Jews, to Jesus' followers, to now a friend.
Can I tell you, Herod Antipas' title was known as the king of the Jews. So I love that Levi leaves his job working for the king of the Jews to go work for the king of the Jews. <laughs> I love that. He's like, I'm going to leave all to follow the real king of the Jews. He left on and followed him, and he became Matthew. He penned the very word of God. And again, listen, even though religion demands change, grace just simply produces change. And if you've tasted and seen the Lord is good, there will be change. I, I'm not telling anyone here, change and God will love you. God loves you, change. <laughs> like, that's how it works. He, his love is just so poured out upon you, it just naturally changes. So listen, embrace the Savior. Embrace the Savior. If you've ever heard Jesus speaking to you quietly in this room, in this place, alone, wherever, and he's just like, follow me. Respond immediately. Don't ignore that voice anymore. Even for you Christians who grew up around this or near this, and you feel like at one point you've heard this, if Jesus, you hear Jesus whispering to you, give it up, follow me. You went back to your old thing, follow me. And this is what's happening. He's embracing the Savior. He leaves all and follows him. And what we see next is he just throws a party for Jesus. And usually, isn't this how it works? Like, when you've, when you've experienced something good, you want to invite everyone in. Weirdly, I'm like an ambassador for this, like, this sandwich place called Lamia Fakasha. Not really, but kind of. Like, I love this food place so much, I invite, like, everyone I know to Lamia Fakasha. Now they're like, hey, just say it. Like, like, it's like, it's awesome. I love, because I've tasted something so good, I need everyone in my life to experience this goodness, right? Like, that's how things work. Like, this is so incredible. Come with me. And here's kind of the idea with, with Jesus. You go, oh my gosh, there's no one like this. Please, you need to come and hear about Jesus. This is what Levi's doing. Look at next verse. In verse Verse 15, we're going to see next Jesus now embrace the sinner. Verse 15, now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also uh, sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Understand this, in a Pharisee's mind or in a scribe's mind, when the Messiah would come, he would not be eating with sinners and tax collectors. He'd be judging them. They thought when the Messiah comes, he's going to rule and reign with his righteous fist, and everyone who's sinful and wicked is going to be destroyed. They're so confused by this. They're thinking Jesus might be the Messiah at this point in time. They haven't made up their mind. Here's Jesus. He's healing people. He's doing some great things. Why is he with the tax collectors and sinners? Shouldn't this be judgment? And we don't see a breath or a hint of judgment within Jesus this time. Yes, in Jesus' second coming, he'll come back as that judge. But in the first coming, he came as that lamb. And, and, and again, this has to be so clear because this is scandalous to them. They go, why is he eating with them? How is he doing this? And, and again, understand this Old Testament thought was when the Messiah comes, he'd come with a feast and party. They're thinking the Messiah comes and there is going to be a banquet and we will be there. We're the scribes. We're the Pharisees. We're the religious. We're the good. We will be with the Messiah sitting with him when he comes and banquets and has feasts. And yet here's Jesus who seems to be the Messiah and he's not feasting with them. He's feasting with, feasting with sinners. Here's a verse in Isaiah 25 or 6, this thought of the Messiah coming and feasting. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he keeps talking about this feast. They were thinking that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be a feast and a banquet, and we're going to be there with him. And here's Jesus, who's maybe the Messiah, but he's not with the scribes, he's with the sinners. And you got to understand, this was shocking to them. And it should be a shock to us by who Jesus hangs out with. Like, that should be a shock to us. I hope we're a little bit shocked. Like, why is that person at church? Like, good, there should be some of that. There should be some shockage happening at our church, at other churches. Like, why are they there? Because Jesus came for them. See, I, I want you to understand, for us, meals don't mean a lot. Like, I'll, I will eat with anyone, anywhere, anytime. If it's good food and if it's free, like, I, I love meals. Like, we'll, we're just, with meals aren't like a big deal for us. For me, if there's just food and it's free, I'm like, I'm going to eat it. Meals for them were more of an experience. 
Meals for them would be in homes. There'd be like this small little U-shaped table. The table would be very low to the ground. You'd actually lean on your left arm and eat with your right hand. Other versions say Jesus was reclining with them. So they lean on one arm and they're reclining, eating food. And it's very intimate. Like, I don't, I don't know if I've reclined with anyone in this room. I don't know if I've reclined next to them, like eat food with them. There's a very intimate setting. And, and understand that back in this day, they would not eat with other classes. They would not eat with people lesser than them. They're educated. They're not going to eat with uneducated. They have money or wealth, they're not going to eat with the unwealthy. And here comes Jesus, basically destroying all social and religious barriers. God, I'm going to eat with you. Eating, do you understand in their mind, eating with them, when there's one loaf of bread and we're both eating that loaf, you have a part of it, I have a part of it, it's going into you, it's going into me, coming from one loaf, we are one. In their mind, they're thinking, when you have a meal with someone, you're identifying with them and you're becoming one with them. And in their mind, they're never going to do that because they're contaminated. Sinners are bad. I don't want to be near them. Their badness will rub off on me. And yet here's Jesus identifying with sinners. He's eating with them. He's enjoying their company. And this is so confusing because this is not how the Messiah should come. He should come to judge. And, and I think that we have to see that this is how Jesus came. Jesus came eating meals with people. And there really is a simple truth to this. Do we eat meals with sinners? Do we eat meals with those who don't know God? Are we invited over to someone's house who doesn't know Jesus? Can I ask you, like, do you, do you have friends who don't know Jesus? Do you like non-believers? Do non-believers like you? Right? Like, do people who don't know Jesus, do they like you? Or they, I can't stand this goody two-shoes, always talking. Like, do people who don't know Jesus, do they like you? Do they, do they want to be with you? Do you want to be with them? I mean, this is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is introducing them to this. And I, I love what's happening in this moment. Jesus is saying, I want to identify with sinners because one day I'm ultimately going to ident- identify with sinners. I'm going to eat a meal with them because one day I'm not just going to eat a meal, but I'm going to take on their sin. The very people I'm eating with right now, and you viewed me becoming one with them, yeah, I will become one with them in a greater way. The, the sin of the world will be placed upon me. And I will identify with sinners in a greater way than even this. And I think there's something really special and unique happening here. There's a guy, I think his name was Tim Chester, and he points something out really unique in scriptures. Three different times in scriptures, there's this phrase, the Son of Man has come, or the Son of Man came, or the Son of Man has come not to. There's three different times it's used, and we'll throw these verses up for you because I think this is interesting. Here's where it says about Jesus. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. What a great verse. That's why Jesus came. Another verse. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Another beautiful verse. Now there's the third one. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. (laughs) All right. Here's what he points out. He goes, notice, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to be a ransom for many. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Here's the idea. The purpose of the Son of Man coming was to do those first two verses, to redeem mankind, to be a ransom for many, and this last one was to show his methods on how to accomplish that, eating and drinking. Like, I love that something so mundane is so profound. That at a table, there's such intimacy happening there. That Jesus saying, listen, I'm not just here to like talk to you and leave. I'm going to share a meal with you. And I really do wish as we as Christians can engage our community better rather than just talking at people or to people, but sitting down and eating with them, developing that relationship with them. I love how Jesus comes. I love how he does this. Jesus is so good this way. And, he, and here's what I see. Again, Pharisees would never, ever, ever in a million years eat with a sinner like this. When it says Matthew invited all of his friends, the tax collectors and the sinners, that's the prostitutes, that's the thieves, that's the addicts. And Jesus is at a meal, prostitutes, thieves, addicts, just sinners, the well-known people in their community of sinners, Jesus is with. 
And that changes, I think, our, how I view Jesus. That's not like Jesus on a Thursday night might be at church, but he'd be, probably be in an addict's house sharing a meal with them. And do we view Jesus this way? Do we view Jesus as, I'm coming, again, not for the ones who are well, but for the sick? Do we view Jesus as, I'm embracing them? This is why I've come. You see, with the Pharisees, and here's how I'd say it, religion builds barriers while grace builds bridges. Religion will say, you're bad, I'm not bad, I can't be with you. I can't associate with you. Grace says, let me build a bridge to you. Let me find something in common with you. Let us share a meal together. Again, church, here's what breaks my heart. When so often Christians, maybe you work with non-believers, or maybe you go to school with non-believers, people who don't know Jesus or are far from Jesus, and when you get together with other Christians and talk poorly of your coworkers who don't know Jesus, or you belittle them, or you kind of just speak, you just speak badly about them with your wife or spouse or friends, it's like, how dare we do that? These are the people Jesus has placed in our life so we can reach them. And we're, they're there, like, we're putting them down. I don't want to be around them. They're this, they're that. It's like, what if someone viewed you that way? What if someone viewed me as, like, a hopeless case? What if someone, I don't want to talk to them about Jesus. They're never going to believe. They're never going to respond. You know how wicked they are? Listen, Jesus came to embrace sinners and how this needs to be entwined into our DNA. That it's not like we can only talk to Christians here. I need to talk to people who have weird, different music tastes than I do and different experience. Like, I need to embrace them and love them as Jesus would. Again, Jesus is in the house with prostitutes, thieves, as well-known sinners. And I think, how is that reflective of us? Is that reflective of me? Guys, please, let us, let us fight for this. Let us fight for a church that will embrace this. Can I tell you like, something how this plays out in my life? I don't know if you've ever heard this or felt this way. Growing up sometimes in the church, we can paint this picture that God is so good and God does not want to be around sin or near sin. I would hear something like that growing up. I don't know if you've ever heard anything like that. Like, God can't look upon sin. He can't be near sin. So growing up, I'd think, well, I still sin. So God can't be near me. Sometimes it's thought of like, God is so good and God can't be near sin. I'm like, well, I'm still a sinner. Can God be near me? And, and they're taking a verse, they're abusing it. It's not that, it's the idea is that God cannot look upon sin with favor and condone it. Jesus changes all of that. Jesus comes in and says, this is why I've come. I've came for that wicked person, that person that you gave up a hope on. The person you stopped praying for, that's who I came for. Maybe you and I were that person that people stopped praying for. Jesus is like, this is why I've come. And I, can't, I think that the danger for us is just kind of just reading this passage like really quickly and moving on and not realizing that this is the heart of Jesus. This is why he came. He came eating and drinking. He came to spend time with people who are far from God. I love that this guy, Jesus, obviously has a very busy schedule and he goes, but I have enough time to slow down and eat a meal with someone. To eat a meal with someone who's so far from me. And how we need more of that in our life. And how I pray that this can be more a part of our lives. Listen, embrace the sinner. Don't belittle the sinner. Don't speak poorly of the sinner. Don't act like they're too far, they're too lost. At that point in time, we are now pharisaical. At that point in time, we've missed the point. And here's the last thing. Embrace the sickness. Embrace the sickness. And this goes for all of us. Look at verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. All right. If Jesus came to call sinners, if Jesus came not to call the righteous, I don't know about you, but my heart, my perspective is like, Jesus, me, I, I'm the sinner. Like, if you came for these kind of people, I want to be that, those kind of people, right? Like, if I know Jesus came for sinners, then hey, me. Like, I want to be known as that then. Because I don't want to be the person that you didn't come for. I want to be the person that you came for, right? I don't know if you've ever talked to a person who's sick, but doesn't know they're sick or won't seek help. 
It is very difficult. If someone's sick and you're like, hey, you really should see a doctor, say, no, no, I'm good. It's like, as they're slowly dying. You're like, no, you should really see a doctor. It is so hard to convince someone sometimes that they're sick. If you have two people, one's sick, or both are sick, and one's aware and one's not aware, it's really hard to help that person. You know, again, a doctor's job is to diagnose and, and seek to cure a patient. A doctor cannot just be only around well people. If, you, if a doctor only saw well people, he'd probably lose his license. Like, a doctor has to be around sick people. I want you to understand that in, in this context, there's two groups of people. Did you not catch that? There's, there's tax collectors and sinners. That's one group. And there's scribes and Pharisees, and that's another group. And here's the thing. Both are sick. Both are extremely sick. One is highly aware of their sickness. The tax collectors and sinners, they know they're sick. But the scribes and Pharisees don't know they're sick. And it's so hard in church, when you're talking to church people sometimes growing up, and to say, you're sick. It's like, no, not they're sick. No, you're sick. I'm sick. I'm sick. I won't be the first to boast in my sickness. I won't be the first to boast in my weakness because that's when Christ is made strong. I won't be the first one to say, I'm sick. Jesus, please heal me. If you have this mindset that I'm not sick, they're sick, you're never going to be healed. Again, Jesus came to heal the sick, to make the sick well. I would rather boast in my sickness and my weakness and my foolishness because that's where Christ's glory and strength is made known. Amen? See, again, all of us are sick. Can I remind you, isn't this good news? Isn't this weird? Like, I didn't want to come to church and hear this. This is good news. All of us are sick. You are sick. <laughs> you are a sick person. I'm sick. All of us are so sick. My heart, as Jesus would say, is deceitfully wicked above all else. I am sick. I need a cure. My sickness will lead to my death. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You are sick and I am sick. And know what this sin leads to is Romans 6.23 says what? The wages of sin is death. That you and I have paid into sin. We paid into sin and that will ultimately lead to death. That there's a sickness within all of us that will lead to our physical death and our eternal death. But I love how Paul says it in, in Romans 6.23, the second half, but the grace of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That we are desperately sick people and that we deserve death, but the grace of God, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What a wonderful gift that we are sick. Do not view it as they are sick and I am well. We are sick. Jesus redeemed me, is redeeming me, and will redeem me. I still need Jesus. Don't think you graduated from this message because you prayed a prayer so many years ago. You still need this message. That Jesus saved me, is saving me, will save me. I'm sick. And not till I see him, 1 John 3, 1 says, then I'll be like him. How we look for that day. How we long for the day of seeing Jesus face to face that we can be with him and be made like him. That will be out of this body of death, this sinful body prone to sin, and have a new glorious body, a body the way he designed it and intended it to be. Let me say this again. You and I are sick. If we don't get this, the church is going to be ruined. It's going to be a nightmare. I really do think, here's what's weird to me. I think the enemy is kind of winning this battle in some ways for Christians to not want to talk about their sickness or pretend that they're okay. Like, it's sad to me when, when a Christian wants to, like, you talk to them and you know something's off, you know something's wrong, and they just can't say, yeah, something's off, something's wrong. It's, been, it's so hard. I think that my, my kind of conversations with people, the one-on-one discussions I might have with people, it's so hard to, to, to help someone when, again, they don't think they need help. It, it's a nightmare. And you're trying to go, well, you're sick. I'm sick. We need this together. Let's fight for this together. And you're trying to, like, convince. And I think that it's weird how sin is so blinding to our self-righteousness, to how good we think we are. 
I would love for this to be a complete humility of just, I am sick and you are sick. Like, again, I, I forget who said this. I don't know if they even they know who said it right, but like the, the church is not a museum for the saints, but it's a hospital for sick people. It's not a place like, let's gather because we're all good. It's like, let's gather because we're sick. You see, this confuses the world because they think, shouldn't you Christians be better? Shouldn't you be more holy? Shouldn't you be further along? You're like, no, we're sick. That's the point. I need a savior. I need someone who can live a life for me on my behalf. That is the point. You see, again, Pharisees had this mindset, I can't be around them because they wanted to protect their holiness. Jesus wanted to be around them because he wanted to share his holiness. He's like, let me share this with you. I'm not trying to protect this. And sometimes we want to be so careful about protecting us or our family and keeping them out when Jesus goes, let me run into it. Let me share this. Again, Pharisees looked down upon sinners. Jesus looked for sinners. And there needs to be a change in our mindset because so often we can be looking down on others rather than looking for them. Because that was me, amen? That was you, amen, right? Weren't you and I the ones who are far from God? Weren't you the ones far from God even in your own self-righteousness? Even thinking I'm good because I grew up in a Christian home? No, you are still far from God if you've not tasted and seen the Lord's good, if you've not experienced the grace of Jesus yourself. We are sick. I need this gospel daily. My heart is not prone to righteousness. I don't wake up, my heart is like, I'm just more righteous today. My heart is prone to sickness. I love how uh, Warren Wearsby said it. He said, the human heart is like a garden. Left unkept, it's full of weeds. But when you till it, it's full of fruit and life. It's weird how the human heart is just, if I did nothing, if Jesus did nothing, it's just going to breed weeds. But if I were to like till the ground and till the soil and then water it and help it out, it's going to produce life and fruit. And guys, that's something that's a daily thing. You can't neglect the garden for a day or a week. It's just going to breed and spread more weeds. Because we are sick. Again, I, here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus is identifying with sinners, eating with sinners, because he's saying, you know what? One day, you think this is scandalous? One day I'm going to take on the sin of the world. I am the friend of sinners. I am the person who will take the place of sinners. I'm becoming one with them now, but become one with them in a greater way. And that was you and I. And let us never for a moment forget this. Embrace the sinner and embrace the sickness. That in the best way I can say this is that you are sick (laughs) and I am sick. But Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came to heal. Jesus is the good physician who says, give me your sickness. And let me just even touch on this. Because so far, Jesus has healed a demon-possessed guy. He's healed leprosy. He's healed a paralytic. He's healed and forgiven Levi, a social outcast. I can't imagine the pain Levi lived with. Think about this pain. I'm a Jew, taking advantage of Jews, working for Rome, getting rich off my own people. Imagine the looks he got from the fellow fishermen. Imagine the, the feeling he had. I, I wouldn't doubt for a moment if this guy's depressed, lonely, isolated. Jesus came to heal us physically. Jesus came to heal us morally, eternally, spiritually. But Jesus also came to heal us emotionally and mentally. For some reason, we don't always talk about this in the church, but there's some mental sickness. We need health. We need help. Jesus can heal in that way. Jesus wants to heal us in every way. Ultimately, yes, when we see him face to face, we'll be healed every way. But I still do believe that Jesus wants to heal today's sickness. You know, I, I don't, I, I wonder, I wrote this down. I didn't know if I was going to share it or not. But it's funny because you guys know I like basketball. But Kevin Love, this basketball player for the Cleveland Cavaliers, came out about mental sickness recently. He had a, a terrible anxiety attack. His team hated on him for it. I don't know if you know the story, whatever doesn't matter. But he had an anxiety attack. The team didn't get it. And then he writes this article basically talking about his mental health and his anxiety just deep depression. He said this. He said, uh, I'd, I'd never had one before, an anxiety attack. I didn't even know if they were real, but it was real. As real as a broken hand or sprained ankle. 
Since that day, almost everything about the way I think about my mental health has changed. He said, no matter what our circumstances, we're all carrying around things that hurt, and they can hurt us if we keep them buried inside. I think sometimes the church, we don't always address or bring up these issues, but I think that some of us have buried this inside. There's mental health, pain, sickness, anxiety, depression. Maybe you have panic attacks. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you, and the weight of this world comes upon you, and I really do believe Jesus heals in every way. That he goes, hey, this guy's demon-possessed, and he's out of his mind. I want to heal that. Hey, this person's a social outcast from society. I want to heal that. That Jesus wants to heal in every way possible. And I believe that Jesus can heal. He said, come to me, all of those who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. Like Jesus wants to. And I'd say that some of us here need, need healing in so many different ways. That all of us need healing in probably more, more than one way. And guys, we want to slow down and say, let's pray for that. Let's pray for that. If you feel isolated, alone, mental pressure, health, anxiety, depression, Jesus does want to heal that. If you're spiritually just not healed because you're still in your sin, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, Jesus wants to heal that. Listen, he called Levi, follow me, and everything about his life was changed. When you've, when you've experienced the call and the grace of God, everything about your life will be changed. It doesn't mean you will never face them anymore, but you can face them with Jesus now. You can walk through them with Jesus now, amen? We're going to spend some time in worship, but we are going to end, and we have a couple people up here. I'm going to say, if you need prayer for any of those categories, please come and get prayer. Please know that you have a great physician who wants to heal. You have a great physician who wants to seek and save the lost. Amen? Thank you, Jesus, for being the friend of sinners, right? Jesus, we just thank you. We thank you that, <laughs> God, when, I had, when I've had anxiety, when I've had lows that Jesus, you healed. God, I thank you for everyone in this room. I know many have, have, have tasted and have experienced your healing touch, but Lord, let there be many more. God, I just ask that today that first and foremost, we'd be healed of our sins. That Jesus, thank you that you came to spend time with sinners to redeem us, to rescue us, but Lord, also heal us in every way. As the leper was a social outcast, as Levi was a social outcast, God, maybe we feel that way. Lord, just bring us in. God, we confess we're sick. Lord, for those who maybe never confess they're sick because of their pride or ego or self-righteousness, let that fade away right now. Let us confess, Lord, right now that we are sick and need for you. So work on hearts right now, Jesus. That we can just say we're sick and we need you. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much, again, for the fact that you've come to heal and rescue. So we praise you now, Jesus. We want to slow down again right now and just sing to you and celebrate you because, God, we were blind and now we can see. We were lost and now we're found. Thank you for that, Jesus. In your wonderful name, amen.